Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. And if you just read you, this is a test transmission. It opens a new and, I think, exciting chapter in the story of radio. This is going to be a service to provide a tremendous amount of information and satisfy a lot of different interests. I was always itching to shake it during a program. In the air, on the river and underground. We hope very much that uh, Derek can hear us. Can you hear us? From Resonance 104.4 and Social Broadcasts, this is the Transmitter Radio Hour from XMTR.FM, a new space dedicated to sonic storytelling, original sounds, new voices and archive treasures from radio broadcasts, podcasts and sound art across the globe. I'm Lucia Scadzocchio and I've been scanning the digital soundscape to cut through the noise. The next hour is dedicated to a single project recorded and produced by me in collaboration with the Tower Hamlets Regeneration Team. Docklands and the Isle of Dogs in London has changed dramatically since being established as a busy industrial hub centred around the docks to an industrial wasteland in the 1980s and then an ambitious redevelopment with the arrival of Canary Wharf. The DLR and the infrastructure around the overground railway line has been key to the development of the area. Talking to local people who live and work on the Isle of Dogs across four generations, we will hear about the unique history of the island, how things have changed and how the DLR underline could be used in the future. Commissioned by the London Borough of Tower Hamlets as part of the DLR Activation Project, this audio series was recorded from September 2021 to May 2022 with the aim to celebrate the area's heritage and to collectively reimagine the future of the Underline as a public active space. This is Sounds of the Underline, an audio story of the Isle of Dogs in six chapters. Chapter 1. Welcome to the Isle of Dogs. Isle of Dogs is a very, very special place and it also challenges are very different to other parts of the borough. And uh, if you ask a resident living here, they're going to give you a version. From a council, it probably is another version. But generally, I think what we can all agree is that the place has become so dense over the last decade. And whilst on the one hand, you could see it as a positive energy that is driving that more people wanting to live, but for those living here, it could be seen as it's more of the flats built for those who are not living here, but just as a real estate asset. Who is this place for is always a big question here. What does it feel like for a person living here from the time they wake up to get to work, take the children to school, come back in the evening, where do they go out? Where do they spend their time in the weekends? What's around them? Whilst we work on delivering more open space, should we also be looking at what we need to enhance what's already there? And therefore, that's the kind of the background to this project. It's something about the Isle of Dogs which kind of attracted me. I mean, it, partly because I like dereliction, <laughs> and there was a lot of that around. But also just the physical 
nature of the Isle of Dogs that it is literally an island, you know, surrounded by the river, so it's kind of cut off. In those days, there was one bus to get on and off the island, and then the Greenwich Foot Tunnel, that was the only way you could really access it, and of course there was no DLR, there were no uh, other forms of transport. So it seemed to me it retained a sense of community, you know, we live in this place and we're different from the people who live in other parts of the East End. That was sort of reinforced the more I met people, that the real sense of, of being an islander is as different from just being an East Ender. And I think some of that still survives today. So obviously the population now is much more diverse than it was then and it's diverse both ethnically but also socially. I love the Isle of Dogs actually. I think it's a really interesting and um, charming area. The fact that it's surrounded by water is lovely. I think the quality of air is better here. It's like a big community here on the Isle of Dogs. Nearly everybody knows each other. Yeah, like a big family. You know everybody. Your neighbours, you could rely on them. I know you had nothing, so you couldn't. nobody could take it away. Really. <laughs> that was one thing, but I like the island. We've always been family-orientated. Well, I'm an islander, yeah. There's a lot of people come down here by choice in these later years. And some of them have become really good islanders, but others are press the button to come out their estates and press the button to go in their estate, you know. We are in a very big city like London, but the feeling is that we live in a small town on the Isle of Dogs. I love Isle of Dogs. People here are very proud of being, uh, you know, an islander. It still uh, has a lot of history. The residents, uh, they are here, but they are always surrounded by this new generation, new people like us. I mean, my kids, they are growing here. So, and I don't want to leave Isle of Dogs. The demographics have changed. You've got the new intake of people. They're the kind of middle class, more well-off people, but... They've added to the area. For me, you've got two. You've got your indigenous population that have felt left out for a lot of years and you've got your new intake. It is more diverse now, the, the Isle of Dogs, than it used to be with, with the class and the wealth. We have a very, very mixed community base. A very large proportion of um, Bengali um, people from Afro-Caribbean background. We also have quite a lot of people who have come here to work at Canary Wharf and quite a wide range of different backgrounds, different ethnicities and different social classes. I just kind of fell in love with the area. I think that it's got everything you need, you know, it's also quite modern. But on top of that, I think it's kind of like a melting pot for a lot of different cultures. So we have a, a pretty sizable uh, international community here from all over the Asia, for instance, or East Asia, South Asia. So you do kind of get to enjoy a lot of things that kind of I, I miss, you know. I love Canary Wharf. Youngsters growing up here, they don't have to go to the West End, they can go to Canary Wharf. I'm not fond of all the developments that are going on. There's a big overkill on the Isle of Dogs now. It's quite scary, really, of what we keep saying, it's going to sink here, there's so many going on. first moved here, it was Docklands. It was derelict, it was wasteland, the machu was a wasteland. My children growing up were forbidden to come over here because of what it was like. Everywhere you see housing developments now, they were companies, um, a lot of haulage firms, a lot of uh, industry that has gone basically from here. But in all honesty, there's been a lot of changes and a lot of them are for the better.
you know, this area is financial, you know, economic growth. You know, this is very developed side, this area. People are coming surrounding all over the world for visiting, even for business purpose. Yeah, when I first started working here, there wasn't that much development around of the area and there wasn't that much flats or the new buildings. It became busier and busier day by day, I can see that. And now there's so many residential people who live here. When I started to work here, our main customers, they were coming from the banks on the lunchtime, but now our weekends are more busier than the weekdays. I work in Canary Wharf. And so I used to live like 10 minutes by the station, but then when we decided that we want to expand our family, we started to walk around to see if there were parks and spaces where we could be with children. And we saw that this would be a better place. So we moved um, more in depth into the Isle of Dogs. Most of the flats are one bedroom, quite small. Not all of them have, well, actually my flat didn't have any parks nearby or anything. It's good for a time in your life, when you are younger maybe, or when you don't have children. But then it feels quite dry, quite sad, even when you want to have a family. And you don't see many families either there as well. If you're not going anywhere to Central, you tend to stay around here and it's just a nice walk by the river. I don't really venture too far off from the area. There's a wonderful park farm um, off the beaten track. You wouldn't know it's there. It's, it's a really nice day out. Machu Park and Farm is 32 acres of public open Spain, natural parkland, which is an oasis of beauty in the heart of the Isle of Dogs in particular. There is nothing but concrete jungle now. You wouldn't know it's here unless you actually see it. It's amazing. You can literally see Canary Wall from here. It's at the end of a residential street. There are so many interesting things everywhere you turn on the Isle of Dogs. I personally would always recommend people come down here for a day and just have a walk around, just experience the place, see what's going on, experience the docks. The docks is like one of the main places of the Isle of Dogs, where everyone goes on that, everyone that lives on the Isle of Dogs. Most teenagers go here to jump in and stuff, but it's like well known. I recently moved here, but I really like it. Loads of things to do here, like you can do swimming, parks, there's beaches, loads of like places you can go on like nice walks in the hot weather. Pretty nice. Chapter two, the history of the docks. Wherever you look on the other dogs, you can see elements of the past. It's things like appreciating the docks. I think a lot of people don't really look around them. Once you stand up and appreciate the size and the scale and the beauty of the docks, you really begin to appreciate the areas. Obviously, the reason why the Isle of Dogs was created in the first place. And to be fair, when I start my tour with my planners, I always start with the history. This place came about because of the need of the docks. Obviously, the need has changed, but the docks are so integral to the history and to the existence of where we are today. Our back fence was the Mill Dock fence. So we backed straight onto Mill Dock and there was a dock railway line behind our house, which we used to sit and watch. We were kind of a dead end road and we were just surrounded by docks. So all you would hear would be the croaking and the creaking of the and groaning of the cranes. That was our soundtrack to growing up. And everybody worked in the docks. The dock was the focus of everything. And all the firms around there lived off the docks. They made ropes, you know, still work. They were all kind of associated with, with the docks. The main noise you heard living where I lived on the island was the rivet guns. 
that's the thing, shipbuilding and barge building, barge repair, the rivet guns, that's the noise you heard. I thought it was a marvellous atmosphere. People would come down from Scotland and up north and from across the island and during the late 80s we were perhaps had the best craftsmen in the world working on the island. My dad, he went on to fulfil something that I'd have loved, fulfilled his life inside the dock walls. Never done one day's work outside the dock walls. Richly the same people all day. Each gang in the dock was like a little family. They even went on holidays with some of them in my gang. And we meet Saturdays. How great I mean it is the people that lived on the island. I found it an excellent place to grow up. I went to school there and the first school I went to, I still know people to this day and who still live on the island after all these years. We went to the same youth clubs. We left school and we was self-sufficient in industry. Didn't have to wander off the island for any kind of industry. It was all there for your needs. I won't get political, but 1980 is an infamous day in history for us. And they just took my industry away from me. My father worked on the quayside, berthing the boats as they came in. Where I was born, could look out the window and see my father coming along berthing the boats and everything else so I used to watch him doing his job out the window. You could see men running around, trailing ropes behind them. I sit, sometimes see my father take a, a massive rope and walk it down and sort of work in the quayside articles, the winches that dragged the boats in. And one of his jobs, before the boats came in, there was a footbridge that went across the, the locks. But to go up this, this one side, and when the other side swung around, you had to reach across and sort of link the two pieces up so you had a footbridge going across. And the other thing was, of course, they used to have to wind up the lights and different things like that. Or when there was going to be a, a gal, they would have to go in, hoist the cone up, which showed there was going to be a gal and winners and all that sort of thing. The docks were dying on their feet in the 1970s. My dad was getting worried about them. He wasn't getting much overtime, he had quite a big family, and he had a house, which is an asset. So he decided to move, uh, like a lot of people were moving. Also, I think it's important to say he didn't like <laughs> high-rises and tower blocks. I think he felt, and the demographic of the island was changing quite a lot in terms of when they cleared the old streets on Millwall, which was around the early 60s to around 1967, 68, they cleared all the old streets, so-called slum clearances. And they built a big council estate, one called the Barkentine, and my dad didn't like that. The docks closed in 1980, a lot of people moved away. It became very run down. There was a domino effect. Where the docks closed, everything very quickly followed suit. People started to move away for work, places like Dagenham, Kent. In 1978, there was a Dockland development plan was drawn up. I think there was a change of government in 1979. Conservative government got in and implemented a plan. They closed the dock which is probably was going to come anyway. Then uh, in 1981, they appointed the London Docking Development Corporation and rate free, there was a, an enterprise zone created uh, in an attempt to sort of to create some business and some people to get themselves going in some way. But one thing that defines the island is the terrible transport links that we used to have. Very hard to get on and off of. The LDDC set about uh, creating the DLR, which wasn't until 1987, it took time, and they were trying to create local jobs. 
most of the jobs that created in what's now the Canary Wharf area, Marsh Wall was the first area where they started to develop. They brought their own workforce with them. For a lot of people who weren't really qualified enough to work there because they used to working with their hands. When the docks were actually working, unless you were employed to work in the docks, you were not allowed in the docks. And there's a wall, you know, a tall brick wall going all the way around it, parts of which still survive, though not much of it. So it was kind of like a, a forbidden area. But when I came, I could access it quite easily, actually. But of course, it was all empty and cranes just not doing anything and uh, warehouses with smashed windows. You know, you can imagine what it was like. Well, you can look at my photographs. You don't have to imagine. There are around the island a number of what we call uh, heritage boards that uh, tell a little story about the locality. So there are a number of stories where there is still some physical connection that you can relate to. If you're interested in the area and want to get to know about it, then to do the tour of the heritage boards, there are 10 of them. And I'd certainly recommend anybody who's interested in the past of the area to follow that. Chapter 3. Change on the Isle of Dogs. It's one of the fundamental questions when it comes to regeneration. Who is it for? And we, as a borough, have experienced this transience of population throughout history. It tended to be more towards the East End, and this was, at the time, essentially the docks. So as more people made this their homes, it began to feel like a place and it had voice, it had people who really care about this place. But as we saw more and more new developments come forward, and the type of spaces that this also delivered, you know, two beds, one beds, etc., and the proximity of the Kennedy Wharf estate, there was a feeling, and it is true, that this is becoming more and more a place for this transient population who would come in, work for a few years, and then move on. There was a lot of space created once all the firms disappeared, so they started to build apartments and houses. Initially, there was a pretty good system uh, where a lot of it went to people who were on housing lists. Islanders didn't want to go off. People didn't want to come and live on the island. And kind of that's how they liked it, you know. <laughs> it was their place, and it was a kind of homogenous sort of place. You know, it was pretty much a white working-class population. So what happened was there was a, a shift where people who had priority on the housing list when these new houses were being built, were being put on the island because they had larger families. Then you get the resentment kicking in, you know, so, you know, oh, they're getting the houses and we're not, you know. From going, being a very unified, cohesive community into a fairly divided community, three ways. You've got the new populations coming in, you've got the traditional populations, and then you've got these people coming in buying what they called yuppies. Hard-working people coming in buying houses, but they're on better wages because they worked in, in a financial centre buying these apartments. So most people like us were forced to sort of move away. We didn't have children, we didn't have any housing points on the housing list. So you move away. Now suddenly you're, you're an outsider to your own area and you're still working there. Eventually the older generation got left behind. A lot of the older islanders have now moved out because you live here, your son or your daughter can't get a place because it's just out of their reach. 
There's no council places hardly anymore. It's affordable rents, whatever they yeah, are. Your, your kids used to be, be in the same street. Used to be guaranteed yeah. a property yeah. on the island. The same as anywhere, wasn't yeah. it? You, you know, your kids could stay close. Now they've got to move out. My four children still live on the island now. I'm very, very fortunate. Well, the island don't mean nothing to my grandchildren because most of them are living in Kent or Essex. The only way they could be housed. Tell you the truth, I feel like a red Indian. No one likes us and they don't care. I've got a lad, he's down Stanford Lee Oak, works in here. Now, that's perhaps nearly 30 miles away. Now, he's destined now to have a car the rest of his life so he can get to work. There shouldn't be things like that, you know. We used to go home to dinner here. Them days are gone and lost, and they were good days. I've got a son moved out to Essex, um, Elm Park, Romford Ray, a lot of people going to Dagenham, where it's more affordable. Generally it's for, I say, early 20s, single, maybe a couple, maybe married, close to work, close to Canary Wharf, close to the city, and I suppose those are the benefits you have. Canary Wharf is great in terms of the facilities, it's got all the stuff, it's quite modern. But I think uh, as you get families, it becomes more and more difficult. I suppose that's a one problem with the Docklands generally is the infrastructure is struggling, right? You can see with all the new developments coming around, you've got uh, uh, the one and everything in central uh, Canary Wharf. And that's a difficulty now, even with the, um, the lorries coming in, you know, there's uh, a lot of them. The A13 comes down from the docks. I mean, you come down and now it's every day it's packed traffic's at a standstill, it's not necessary, they could have used a river. Generally there is a lack of services on the island. When, when I grew up on the island there were shops everywhere. The whole of the, the loop in the river was basically shops on the inside part. The outside was industrial, but the inside part was all shops with houses above them. That's something you can see in any picture. And that's when there were 15,000 people living there. Now you've got 55,000 people, going to be 100,000 people, maybe 120. And they're going to need shops and provisions. You've got Asda, but when we had the first COVID outbreak, there were queues around the block because there's only one shop. It's only one garage. I know local shops have disappeared pretty much everywhere, but you've got to make provision for people. We had a butcher's, a baker's, a greengrocer's. But then again, I don't think those shops could compete with the supermarkets. I'm not sure. We are pretty new here because before we were in Pepper Street, but we moved two months ago because they are demolishing Pepper Street and they are building up two towers, 320 apartments. So suddenly they said, I'm sorry, you have to move. Okay. And also this area is pretty controversial because there are lots of residents, many, but no small business premises. Yeah. Or if you see some empty premises, of course, first they are big. And second, you cannot pay rent. It's ridiculous. And they're still empty. So after the pandemic, they should have learned that they could probably be more available, you know, towards the community. So I think they will stay empty forever because who can pay such a rent? What I like about this area, there's a vibe like going on. It's like quite alive and there's very young population who lives here. So it is really great to see there's always big energy going on. Even we can, it's busy. What the people need who live in the area, some um, kind of open spaces that they can spend their time, especially on the weekends, because most of them, they have either balconies or they don't. 
I know there's not much space left because of these residential buildings. Some places need to be grassy more because less grass and more concrete. It's not really fair. I wonder why it's so hard. There's very little green space and every bit of space gets taken up. People probably think, well, if I raise children here, where are they going to play and where are they going to be raised? And it also puts enormous pressure on schools. They've built several new primary schools, but I think there's probably six or seven primary schools on the island because of the number of kids being born here. It's a good thing because initially I think people treated it as an investment. I know quite a few people, that, even from other parts of the East End, they bought a place on the island. It was fairly affordable. Once they had kids, they said, I'm not putting the kids in local schools, and they moved out. There are still good things on the island, and we want to keep them all. And the one thing is, we've all got the will to get out, you know? Yeah. And we've got to get out and meet people. We have got some good things on the island. The question is, if you want to really make this as a place where people want to stay, then it goes, yes, housing is a big part, but it's also other things. Parks, safety, schools, and all of those things that you need investment and upgrade. So people begin to feel that this is a place that they're willing to compromise on something, but not everything. That's the big challenge for us, and we've seen the pattern still continuing, because more recently there was a survey that the council undertook, and a large percentage of people have expressed that they're looking to move out. So the prices and the flats have a big role. Chapter 4. The Future of the Isle of Dogs. Uh, without a crystal ball, it's certainly the population is going to go up a lot more. I think it's going to double in the next 10 years. Along with that comes more schools, along with that comes less space, more wealth comes in. Tower Hamlets and more precisely the Isle of Dogs for the past couple of years had an incredible amount of development. This is one of the highest densest places in the UK and there is further development prepared. So I think by 2030 or something, we're gonna have around 100,000 people living here. At the moment, I think the estimate is probably around 50 or 60,000. So that's probably you know, circa double the amount. So clearly we need to have a more sustainable development and we need to make sure that there is enough amenities, whether it's infrastructure for play places, parks, gyms and all of that. It's really difficult to imagine what the future is going to be like uh, given what's happened over the last sort of five years. <laughs> so looking at Crystal Ball, I mean, what I'd like to see is a, is a thriving community where you have people from all walks of life being able to kind of coexist in a really active public realm, which is the thing that brings them together. They might be rich people living in one building and less rich people living in another, but why can't we all coalesce in a really great public realm? From a policy point of view, there is a requirement for each side to meet a certain amount of greening. Developments that come forward from now on will have to deliver a certain quantum of open space and green space and play space. So my view is that as we look into the future, when developments come forward, they would contribute to this and therefore create a much more human-centered, pedestrian-focused environment and a much more welcoming environment.
I'm a spatial planning lead and I work for Transport for London and the Greater London Authority. My role is to support growth in London, both in terms of new housing, new jobs, but also support the communities around that as well. Particularly now post-pandemic, you know, what are the big questions around how that could shape in the future? Under mayoral policy, and that's the London plan, that is set to become a new town centre in the next 20 years. In terms of how it's changing, a lot of the work that I've been doing is around managing the growth. So not necessarily like looking at how the, the skyscrapers have come forward, but actually how could they come forward in a cohesive way that stitches together both the community and the new developments that supports everyone. So things like infrastructure, obviously I work on the transport side. So how can we enable walking cycling? How can we um, support the DLR's future? If they subscribe to the 15 minute city, which is basically having everything you need within 15 minute walking distance, then I think that's just unbeatable because you're going to have anything that you need, whether it's for work, whether it's for leisure, for play or whatever, all around here. I do hope that in 30 years time, there's been good development around here, sustainable development that captures both the what Canary Wolf is, but also what the Isle of Dogs used to be as well. Just so we are not just thinking on the gentrification, really you know, pushing people uh, you know, away from where they are, but also keep conserving part of the identity. I am a landscape architect and we design landscape in and amongst some of these new developments, especially in this area of the Isle of Dogs. Currently we have, I think, about four projects in the area. So Mill Harbour is a big one at the moment and we've already built the first piece of landscape, which is a little mini forest, about 100 trees and about 80 metres by 20 metres. And it's initially designed to be a backdrop for the marketing suite for the Mill Harbour project. Once that's uh, done with, the forest becomes an integral part of the scheme. It's, it also improves biodiversity and it's just a very unique landscape. I think a lot of the other landscapes around, you know, within a lot of these developments are still very corporate, lots of granite everywhere. The Mill Harbour project is, is a high density residential led project, but it also has two schools and a theatre and some commercial space. So it's quite mixed use. And the idea behind it was how you understand the area. I think a lot of the developments in the area are pretending they're on the Canary Wharf estate. And I think what we were trying to do here is actually change that and have a sense of coming home and a sense that it's not Canary Wharf. And so actually looking at materiality very different from what you'd see in Canary Wharf and a certain amount of wildness to the planting and density as well. So there are moments when you can't see the buildings and you're surrounded by green. Why can we not have wild landscapes in our cities? Everything we're doing now is depaving, <laughs> getting as much soft landscape into all of our schemes as possible because it's timeless and it helps to cool us and it helps to you know, clean the water and it helps to clean the air and it makes us feel a lot happier. I'm the lead designer for South Key Plaza, which is a development consisting of three residential-led buildings between Marshwall and the South Dock. The South Key Plaza is very much a landscape-led development from the outset in the sense that the slender building footprints free up over two-thirds of the site for open space. And this is very much needed in the Isle of Dogs where we have a lot of dense developments. We have over two-thirds of the site as open space and this open space also is primarily green. So it consists of a pocket park between the buildings and then together with this we have a series of gardens 
all around the dock with a range of wildlife attracting uh, species, tall trees of 15 meters high, so that we can really create a very rich, biodiverse environment to attract wildlife, but people too, because it's something very different to what you see around the Isle of Dogs. Taking into account that we are dealing with a wide range of users and age groups, we feel that the spaces that we design should be multifunctional. I think Canoe Wharf does bring good elements to the Isle of Dogs. Obviously it's an international centre, from that it brings investment and that's what we need to utilise to kind of improve the rest of the Isle of Dogs. What isn't always here at the moment, it feels quite isolated at times. The area itself, but also the communities. And I think where we can help is actually stitching those communities together, both new and old, actually to the benefit of everyone. And for me, that's what I would want to hope to get out of the next 20, 30 years, is to really try and do that. And these are community people. It gets overlooked. This was like a village. I call it an industrial village. It was a very, very tight place. Everyone knew each other. That's the they brought up. So if you take away their meeting places, and that's what people need, that's what the heartbeat, you get social groups in there. It's important, these are things that keep people going and, and the churches play a good role in that. I mean, I know it sounds kind of trivial, but it's the things that give life meaning, aren't they? I mean, we try to recreate uh, as much as possible a homey environment. So the music, the flowers, the ingredients, the, the people, you know, it's like um, that you are coming to my house. I mean, I'm happy about uh, what happens on the Isle of Dogs because all the small businesses, we are trying to collaborate, to do something new. But, you know, it's so difficult to enter into Canary Wharf. The biggest strength of this place is people. And knowing at least some of them that I've interacted with, they're really committed to the place. And they have done also some amazing uh, projects before you know, we or the council intervened. This has been going on for so long. And I think if that continues and that can be supported and that can thrive, we can see these spaces that are transforming really fully alive and more things happening more informally. Chapter 5, the DLR Underline. The DLR was first constructed in 1987, and that was a very small railway running from Tower Hill out to Island Gardens at the bottom of the Isle of Dogs. And the reason for that, it was, it was supporting the new development corporation in the area, which was effectively the precursor to what we associate with Canary Wharf right now. So all those big towers, that was the initial push start of that. Not the DLR that we know today, but for me, it's one of those things that has been a success story from the outset, and it goes from strength to strength. There's been several extensions to Bank, to Lewisham, and since then out east into the Royal Docks. So we have like the city airport extension, and now have it to Woolwich. And also, as the growth has come forward, quite clearly the DLR has had to keep up with that. The underline is kind of an interesting thing. It's actually something that we came up with quite a long time ago when we were working on another development further to the west. I went on site and it was raining and I realised everyone was walking underneath the DLR because it was a nice dry route and created this kind of urban colonnade that ran between the DLR stations and various buildings. So that's the thing that made us realise the potential of something like this. And I think you can now see lots of other projects like this coming online around the world. It's about density of use. We can't afford to just 
let spaces like that go to waste. They're actually very valuable. The idea of like a high line or underline is so exciting, particularly in an area like this. As I say, lots of change. There's so many opportunities. The issues are, I don't, are the issues, it's more to do with the fact that it's an automated railway. If something untoward were to have happened, people need to have access to the structures very quickly. And for that reason, we have a lot of infrastructure protection measures, all for the right reasons. It doesn't necessarily allow opportunities to present themselves as easily. Having said that, I personally think there is a really interesting gray area where we can try and play with these things. And certainly the discussions that are starting to happen are starting to think about that. And I would say there's other examples in the world coming forward, like the Miami underline, where those challenges have been addressed. And there's so much to learn. And I think the future is quite exciting for us. Every time there's a planning application for a site next to the DLR, there would always be visuals that show how DLR is going to be this amazing green space. The reality is when it gets built, it's not the same way as those visuals show. It's not just about green space in the sense of grass and trees. Yes, it's a big part because of the density, but equally are there spaces that local groups and community and everyday people can use for different things. The more we looked at the amount of space just within the Tower Hamlets, you know, it's roughly around seven hectares of land that's underneath the DLR. This is already open and exists. What it doesn't have is a designation for use. So it's sometimes used as car parks, just open land. So we kind of just said, okay, let's look at one stretch where we already know it's going to be a new town center emerging and beginning to kind of look at it as a pilot. I'd like more community-based spaces. Really active, innovative play and sports and exercise sort of things for all ages. I think they can be quite brave, so something that's kind of bright, colourful, fun, but very human and also linked to the community. These buildings are very big and a little cold, so something of human scale that brings people together. Build, you could build a lot of a little football cage, a goal, and then and then there's just like a penalty spot, and you like take penalties. Uh, uh, trampoline, maybe a skateboard, uh, a skateboard area or something. Yeah. yeah maybe a little basketball cage as well. Basketball cage. Um, I would put like a basketball place there, or like um, football, or like little tennis things, so like people can enjoy it. Like little kids, or they want to play. Skating, like they have at South Bank, I could have that here easily. More play spaces for children. The play spaces are diminishing fast, especially on this island. I think just behind us they were making a uh, go-kart racetrack from uh, the car park because they weren't using it. So I think they need to build it more of an attraction. They come here for Canary Wharf because it's not just work, it's a bit more play rather than having to go into Central. Mm. Uh, I think that will then attract people from Stratford and other places that come in towards this epicenter. Places for children are always missing or teenagers and gardens are always like, vegetable gardens are very needed now. <laughs> Everywhere, I guess. <laughs> we came up with the idea of a pop-up park. So the pop-up park consists of a series of movable planters in different sizes that can be arranged in different combinations to create what feels when you walk in there as a very green and lush environment, but should there be a need to access a space for uh, any type of uh, you know, emergency, they can be moved with a forklift. 
maybe we can create something like High Lie in New York. And it can be green, nice walking path to the people with some benches on it. Canary Wharf and Docklands that need some greenery. I would put a place for the DLR people who work there. It's like a little like a chill out place for them. So then they can have like a break for themselves. Different places to just sit around, bit of peace. Other than car parks. Because then when you go along on the train, it's nice to look down and see what's underneath. And I'd be like a water fountain, a pond, I don't know. I like all nature and stuff like that, so all plants and stuff would be nice. The Hanging Gardens of East London. Baskets, you can, when it rains, you can see that they're piping all the water off, so you could direct that to feed the plants. But big, long, hanging like vines and colour and stuff. Some lighting in there will be good. Maybe even a space where people can put up some trolleys in summer for drinks or for food or whatever, so people can have options as well outside the cinema. I'm thinking just in West India Key. Street food or this kind of place, you know, where, because Canary World is full of restaurants and life, but from there, we don't have many options in the island. It's just few restaurants and few pubs. So definitely, if it could be something regular, it would be fantastic. In the 2019, uh, we organized the first food festival on the Isle of Dogs, uh, which was the Carbonara Day in London. We had uh, 3,500 people coming from all over London. No one knew that uh, Isle of Dogs has a foodie area, foodie district. And this is what I want to do here. We can also organize a food festival again under the bridge. We had the Island Carnival. Then yeah. there was one that went all round. That was it, yeah. Poplar and that, and we had the Island Carnival Queen and that, yeah. and then oh. that little one joined the big one and it went all round Poplar and round the island and all things like that. <laughs> I used to have a tramway, and they used to stop at the pubs all the way round the island. <laughs> <laughs> but there's not the pubs here no more. Yeah, no. I guess they could stop at <laughs> Pop-up markets would be good. Yeah. You could have different things like the farmer's market once every couple of months or just pop-up stalls and you know oh. underneath sort of that marsh wall. Mm. There is room to do it. I think things like markets. East End people love markets. We used to use railway arches but somewhere where they could go and just be a shopping and to catch up and this sort of thing. You could have arts projects going on as well which is good. It brings people together and it just makes it a little bit life a bit more interesting. It's great to have all these high rises and DLR, but it's a little, it feels a bit soulless. It doesn't feel like a community, you know? Well, there's lots of creative people on your island now and lots of people that are enterprising. There was a guy in Mudshoot doing stained glass workshops. That's the sort of thing you want, just a bit of diversity in terms of something interesting to go and look at because people can't walk around all day looking at tower blocks. I will give the space to more artists, even local artists. There are so many. There's the Forge, for instance. They have lots of designers inside. A market where people can buy fashion, art, jewellery. Trying to tell everyone to do the same thing underneath the DLR is not really going to work. So I think the idea was to have something that held it together, some sort of signage, wayfinding, graphics, always creating a, a clear space beneath the columns with themes allowing the developers and, and a local authority to do different things beneath it to actually create almost a, a barcode of kind of interesting places and elements in, in it. That could be about play, it could be about ecology, it could be about planting, it could be about arts, it could be about community.
but actually it could be a really interesting thing to walk through to experience all these different places. I was involved in developing a piece of policy guidance for the area called the Isle of Dogs Opportunity Area Planning Framework, which is a master plan for the area. And certainly from the transport perspective, there's a whole chapter in there where we talk about the art of the possible in terms of what you could do under the DLR, very much the highest level principles in terms of that. But, you know, that's kind of the first step at least. And then we'll move from there. I think I would really want that space to be where people feel when they're thinking about a plan in the morning or the weekend, they could call their friends and say, I want to meet you there, we can play tennis or we can bike ride. So it's just being a space that people can hold in their heads when they're thinking about their lives on a normal everyday basis. Not the grandness of, oh, there's a concert when we need a ticket, but it's a place that it's part of your everyday. Chapter 6, A Dockland Soundscape
That's it from me. You've been listening to the Transmitter Radio Hour from Social Broadcasts. This last hour was dedicated to the sounds of the Underline, a sound exploration of the Isle of Dogs in six chapters, finishing with a final field recording from the Docklands. If you want to hear more audio works by other people, past and present, subscribe to xmtr.fm, a platform dedicated to sonic storytelling featuring works by radio makers, podcasters and sound artists from all over. I'll be back with more audio, radio and podcast discoveries in the new year. In the meantime, happy listening. <laughs>